God, that's our prayer this morning. That we would be willing to waste what it is this world has to offer in view of who you are. That we would want to run towards you. And that as we do that, that you would be molding us and shaping us into this new creation that you've promised to make us. Would you speak in a mighty way this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Now, I, I really don't want to start controversy, but these guys are mostly from Biola University. That is my alma mater. And um, I thought I'd, uh, it, by the way, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I haven't gotten off task for quite a while until about five minutes from now. Um, but I wanted them to know, since they're at Biola, that my grandson is named Phineas Jonathan Scott. And a cool story is they were both freshmen, didn't know each other, and Eric Tonis was preaching on Phineas. And this was in the, in the fall of 2002. They both put it in their mind, if I ever have a son, I'm going to name my son Phineas. How cool is that? Then they meet, they share stories about, what do you name your son? And I was voting for John. I, at least I got middle name. Um, and they decided to name him Phineas. Numbers chapter 25, someday you should check it out. It's a pretty intense passage, and if you read it, check it out before you share it with your kids. But it's a, it's a very intense passage about Phineas, who was jealous for God. With that being said, I realize that this morning we're talking about something that is very near and dear to us today. We're talking about heaven on earth and developing an eternal perspective. And quite frankly, in light of the events of yesterday and the memorial service for John Champ, I think all of us have been reflecting a bit on what eternity would look like, especially as life and death are in such juxtaposition for me personally. Seeing that baby born yesterday and then praying for you during the service for John kind of frames the discussion this morning. And so if you would, in honor of God's word, stand, and I would like to read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to try to recite it from memory because some of you know that when I was dating my wife in high school... We had a deal. We couldn't go out on a next date until we had actually memorized another couple of verses. And Colossians 3 was one of the passages we memorized along with James 1 and several other ones. And so it goes something like this. If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For your life has been hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is revealed and who is our life, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The pictures on the screen represent a story by the name of Larry Walters. Having an eternal perspective is framed by this discussion if you knew who Larry Walters was, this is not one of those uh, urban myths. This actually happened. It was July 2nd, 1982. 
Larry decided he was tired of just sitting around doing nothing. And he came up with this crazy idea to hook him up, himself up to a lawn chair and attach several dozens of weather helium balloons. And this 33-year-old truck driver rigged 42 helium-filled weather balloons to a Sears lawn chair in San Pedro, California. They cut him loose, and to his surprise, he quickly elevated to 16,000 feet. Now, you've got to imagine the story. Now, he had thought enough to bring a pellet gun to blow the balloons out so he could land safely, but he went up so fast, he dropped uh, his camera, he, uh, he panicked, he had the balloon, uh, he was up there, and um, this is a true story. While he's up there over the Long Beach airspace, air traffic control have a hard time explaining what they're seeing, especially when a Delta flight was about to land saying, uh, Tower, there's a guy in a lawn chair. <laughs> and um, the police didn't think it was all that funny, quite frankly, and he actually did get arrested. Uh, but the, the charges were dismissed. But as he landed on Earth, 10 miles away in Long Beach, this 45-minute stunt gave him his 15 minutes of fame. And in fact, if you remember, he was on uh, what then was The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He got a, a contract deal with Timex watches, takes a look and keeps on ticking kind of thing. Uh, he quit his job uh, to deliver motivational speeches, of all things. And um, he was asked often if he had a death wish, and he said, no, I just tell them that it's just something I had to do. Now, I want to ask you a question. Was he crazy? or what? <laughs> How many vote crazy? <laughs> or was he courageous? You see, some people think, we're like Larry, we, we're Christians, we just got our heads in the clouds. We just dream up this crazy stuff and that we're not in touch with reality. But Paul, in our passage in Colossians 3, really gives us a framework for thinking about this idea when we're accused of being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Paul kind of attacks that, that conventional wisdom and I don't believe anything could be further from the truth in fact, I think that Paul's challenging us to think about our heavenly priorities says ultimately that's going to affect how we live here on this earth. And in fact, an eternal focus has a way of defining your life. And it affects everything you pursue in life. It changes the way you think. And so if you'd get your notes out, I'd like you to follow along with me and uh, take, get your pen handy. And let me give you an overview of this section of Scripture from Colossians 3 through verse 17. Now, we're going to take two weeks to cover these 17 verses, the first four this week, the rest next week. And then we'll take a break from Colossians, and we'll go into our Christmas series, and we'll pick up in January with uh, the marriage section. Notice I'm waiting to the marriage section until after Christmas. Wives, be subject to your husbands. I'm saving that for January, all right? So the bottom line is, as we look at this passage, Paul goes from what? From, from declaring the truth to defending the truth. He's, um, he's gonna, it's no good to defend the truth unless we actually demonstrate. And so you'll see there's a, a marked shift in now in the Colossians in these two chapters. We go from principles to practice, 
from kind of the theory, the doctrine, to the duty. In fact, we're going from just knowledge to application. So I want to suggest that if we looked at those 17 verses in context, there are three simple points, and I'll give you the overview. We're only going to look at point one today. First of all, look up. See things from a heavenly perspective. That's what we're going to look at today. Then he says, in verses 5 to 11, look out. Separate yourselves from sin. And then thirdly, look within. Surrender to love and compassion. So he says, look up. See things from an eternal perspective. That's where we're headed today. Look out. Separate yourself from sin, verses 5 through 11. And then look within. Surrender to love and compassion, verses 12 through 17. By the way, I'm going to show you a chart that next week that, that is going to blow your mind because all the things that he says to put off, he gives you a corresponding thing to put on. And if you follow those just sequentially, they almost look like they were, I think they were, made to this is the answer to that. And we'll save that for next week. So let's look at this week. Look at the things from above. What's a heavenly perspective to look like? How does a heavenly focus affect the way you live? And especially your heavenly focus as it relates to your earthly feelings. What does heavenly thinking look like? First point, a reminder, our mindset in life. If then you have been raised up with Christ. That word if then or another translation since means they assume it's true and it's a fact and you've been raised up. So what does that mean, you've been raised up with Christ? Well, Galatians 2.20 says that we've been crucified with Christ and so that means if we've been crucified, we've gotta be raised up. Let me show you a, a passage from Romans chapter six. And I think it's on the screen. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. So when it says that we have been raised up with Christ, as a, as a believer, your old life is put away and your new life has come. Baptism signifies that. You were buried, that's your past, and you're raised up out of the water in newness of life. Now we know that baptism doesn't save us, but is symbolic of what Christ is doing in our life. Now does that mean a couple of things? Number one, you're no longer spiritually dead. In other words, you have the capacity now to understand what the Bible says. So for some of you who are in this process of figuring out where God fits in your life, if it doesn't always make sense to you, it's because you don't have the spiritual eyes to see what God's saying to you. That's reserved for those who have become Christ followers. Doesn't mean that you can't learn, but you have, until you give your life to Christ, you can't fully understand all the spiritual implications of the scriptures for your life. Now last week, we, we learned that we, we don't wanna be intimidated by mystics and legalists and ascetics, and uh, that Christ is ultimately sufficient. And this path of holiness it's not a ceremonial thing. It's something that's active. And how do you live a holy life? That's what he's going to get into next week in Colossians chapter 3. And so this section reminds us of our spiritual heritage. And as a result, what does God want from us according to this verse? Look at verse 2. Our responsibility, our mandate for living comes at the end of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2. Keep seeking is the word, or seek the things that are above. And then go down to verse 2. I'll leave... Um, end of verse one there for a second. 
then set your mind on things above. That word seek uh, is this present imperative. It means to continually do that. It's not something you seek him once and go, done with that, I've sought him. Now I can go on about my own business. It's an ongoing, continuous effort. And so we live a Christ-conscious life. We're focused. We live up to the position that we have in Christ. It's a focus on who is in heaven, not what is in heaven. So often we get focused on our own stuff. I'll be honest with you, the last nine days I've been a little focused on a birth for my daughter. I wasn't particularly nervous about it, but since her mother had C-sections and her grandmother had C-sections, I wondered if Katie was gonna be able to deliver this baby naturally. She's just a tiny little thing. And so my question to you is, what is your focus and preoccupation on? Now this week I got a chance, John set me up to go to Westlake High School to speak to the FCA group. There was a hundred and something high school kids out uh, at the lunch hour. And I again have discovered again the truth of of not the scriptures. If you feed them, they will come. (laughs) Because they had like mondo numbers of pizzas and like, pumpkin pie, it was a good day, it was had by all. But I asked them, what do you find your purpose and meaning in life? And I did that thing with the F's and they came up with all these things, but we're caught up with those same focuses, aren't we? Is it about fame or fortune? Or during the holidays, it's all about the friends and family? Or for some of you, it's all about the fun or the fitness? Or for some of you, not so much football anymore. Your season is over as of yesterday. We'll leave it at that. Uh, where's Paul Miller? Where is he? Paul is really the only one happy in this room today, <laughs> along with the guy sitting with the UCLA shirt over there. So, um, yeah, well, God works in mysterious ways. Um, so, b- bottom line is, what do you want to be preoccupied with? What do you want to be preoccupied with? What is your ultimate agenda in life? Where does Christ fit into that discussion? You see, it's easy, and I put this up here on the screen. Look at it. It's so easy to get discouraged with our situations, debilitated by our addictions, derailed by our disappointments, and deceived by our distractions. You probably fit in one of those four categories. From time to time, you're discouraged, aren't you? Or maybe for some of you, you're you're addicted to something and it's debilitating because you never see or you don't seem to see any change in your life. And all of us, all of us have been derailed by a disappointment. And those take all kinds of shapes and forms. And so our, he says our preoccupation ought to be with a heavenly priority. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, let your earthly practice be worthy of your heavenly position. So how do we see life in the light of eternity? Well, Matthew 6, look at this verse on the screen, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. If you read the rest of the context, what are the things that follow Matthew 6, It's in the context of what? You're worrying about what? what you're gonna eat and your clothes and you know he talks about the birds even they got something for them. And so we gotta set our minds on, on the kingdom of God. First Chronicles 22, 19, now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Now believe me, I'm gonna get to how we do that but I want you to ponder that. Do we start our day 
And do we end our day focused on what did God call me to do today? Some of you think you're businessmen. Uh Uh-uh. That just happens to be the way you pay your bills. Your calling is to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and you can either do that in Indonesia, like our most recent missionary couple is, Nate and Abby, but I think you can do it right there in the workplace, in the marketplace. Bill is doing a Bible study at a business where Dave Anfeld works, right? You do a Bible study with guys in the marketplace. That's a pretty cool idea. Some of you are praying with a few of your coworkers before you start your workday. That's a pretty cool thing. Some of you moms gather to pray for the high schools represented in our area with moms in touch. That's a pretty good way to start your day. And isn't easy, we're really super focused on who God is when what thing is true in our life? When we're in a desperate situation. It's amazing how spiritual we get when we got a problem. When we're messed up. When we've messed things up to where we can't unfix it. And then all of a sudden we turn to God. And he's saying, why don't you start with that focus from the beginning? Now what are those things that we should be seeking? I think there's a couple things. First, an eternal perspective. What does that look like? And, his, and what is about his timing? It's this idea of this conscious acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. Now I want to tell you about a book that you've never read. I, I'm guessing most of you have never read. Because it was published probably 80 years ago. And it's a simple little paperback called In His Steps. And it was the precursor to these little bracelets that were famous about 10 years ago. What would Jesus do? You see, I read that book as a high school student, believe it or not, in his steps, and it was the story of what happened and what would transform a community if every time you made a decision you said, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus really do? See, the hard thing when you ask that question is what would Jesus really do when someone has messed you over, you're madder than blazes at them because they've been a jerk to you. Would Jesus seek revenge or would he forgive them? What would Jesus do when a business partner steals from you and now you're left holding the bag? What would Jesus do? If the person you love the most is dying before your very eyes and there's nothing you can do about it. You see, I believe your Christianity and my Christianity and my faith really is seen in the crucible of pain, discouragement, disappointment when things aren't going the way you planned. And so he says, keep seeking the things above. Now those things are above, let me just give you a theological review of a few things that are above. Our blessings are in heaven, Ephesians 1.3. The angels are there, Ephesians 3.10. Christ is there, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. And through our union with him, ultimately will exist in the heavenly realm, Ephesians 2.6. And so you seek the things above and then you set your minds. 
to think, to have this inner disposition. Interesting enough, this idea of setting your minds, there's another time that word is used in the Gospels. And if you look at Luke 9, 51, it's when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die on the cross. And so there's this sense of discipline. When you're, not, when you're seeking God, there's also this discipline that says, I gotta set my mind. I am not gonna be distracted by all the things that are easily distracting to me. You see, for me, during the fall season, football can become a distraction. And in particular, fantasy football can become a distraction. For those of you who don't know what that is, run, forest, run. Do not get involved with it. Because it is a bit of distraction. I watch mindless games like the Bengals versus anybody just to see if Andy Dalton will throw a touchdown. It's not a good way to live your life. I'm admitting that. Actually, when you're winning, it's a really good life. Anyway, you set your mind, you set your direction. Now, I've got a compass, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know how to use this compass, so let's... In fact, when I used to take kids to the Boundary Waters in Canada when I was a high school pastor up in Minnesota, we actually got lost so badly that the, the guy had to come and rescue us in a motorboat, and it was very embarrassing. And so I need someone who knows how to use a compass. I have not pre-selected anybody in the audience. I want someone to come up here and show me where due north is and show me how to use it and point me in the right direction. Who can, who can use a compass and show me how to do it? I know I should have prearranged this, but I'm, <laughs> I'm just trusting that somebody knows what they're doing because I heard about like bug bags. Bill, come on up. Set, set our direction for us. So I see a north, I see a south, I see a east. All right, Bill, get us pointing north and show, show me where, the, stand up here and just show me. Show me how to go north. That's north, right? Is that north? And the arrow has to point north? What's this one mean? What's this one mean right here? Oh, I'm going the wrong way. Okay, so, but how do we, so that's gotta be pointing towards that, right there, that red, like that? What's the white one for? That would be south. Good, all right. So there's north. That's north. That's north. Let's hear it for Bill. Thank you. <laughs> so discovering an eternal perspective is ultimately, what is your due north? Where's your compass setting in your life? Is it, and for our purposes, north is Jesus. It's eternity. It's this idea that everything in our decision choices and what direction we're gonna go does it bring us back to due north? Does it bring us back to Jesus Christ? Do we have those values? Do we compare them to all the other choices and directions we can go? You see, an eternal perspective is more important than an external perspective. It's not about us. Lightfoot said it this way, we, are not, only, we not only seek heaven, but we think heaven. And so we think and our choices are in light of eternity. What would Jesus do? Now, does that mean we just abandon the world? You know, like, I'm just gonna be a monk in a monastery. I'm just gonna study the Bible, ask people to pay for my meals and just re re you know, rely on other people. No, I don't, I don't think that that's ultimately being heavenly minded. You see, I don't believe that isolation is the key. I believe infiltration is the key. We don't isolate ourselves from the world. 
we infiltrate it, and because people see you, they see something different. So the midwife pulls me aside, and this is unsolicited. She doesn't know I'm a pastor. She doesn't know much about my kids. She started with them on Saturday morning. Of course, she saw them again because they didn't deliver until, or Friday morning until Saturday morning, so she was on her shift again. She pulls me aside. She goes, your kids are amazing. Now, I've always known that. I thought, yeah, like, you know, but I'm a parent. I said, well, what do you mean? The way they worked together, the way they loved each other. I said, I know my daughter was in a lot of pain. Did she love him in the pain? She goes, oh, yeah. I wanted to ask more, but I just felt like, did she like swear at him or do anything mean, you know? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, um, I'm a pastor, and, and my kids met at Biola, and I told them this little story, and I said, you know, ultimately they love Jesus. And I got a little teary-eyed, which, of course, you think, what, Pastor John, get a little teary-eyed? Surprise, surprise, right? By the way, about half the comments are, how, how soon did I start crying? <laughs> like, because I'm just an emotional beanbag. And as I heard, but it was interesting, she teared up. Because I think it was the first time she'd seen a, a Christian couple, a young couple, who just lived Jesus, even in probably what my daughter says was the most painful experience of her entire life. Ladies, anybody who's given birth, you know, I know you know that. Us guys, we're clueless. But even in your pain, Jesus can be glorified, and, and I was glad that she was. So the bottom line is a two-step process. Seeking, that's having the desire to follow God, is then, then you set out, and that's the follow-through. One is the desire, the other is the follow-through, and that's why those two different words are used. So who do we look to as an example of that kind of faith? Well, he gives it to us. Look at verse, end of verse one. Where Christ, our model in Christ, he's our resource. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, we've got a picture of a throne. I could not find Jesus, all right? We looked and looked, but there were apparently no known uh, pictures of Jesus uh, yet on the throne. But think about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, and I began to think, is that just kind of an obscure thing? Is that a big deal? Yeah, I mean, you can't tell you how many times it talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Let me just give a few of you. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Luke twenty two sixty nine. 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Acts 2, 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who he was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And it goes on, Ephesians 1, 20, Hebrews 1, 3, Hebrews 8, 1. I get the impression that being at the right hand of God is pretty important. That's why, who had a little argument about that? You remember in the Gospels? Who argued about who's going to be at the right hand of God? The disciples. Hey, do I get to sit at your right? You know, because the right hand of God biblically means it's a metaphor for the place of supreme privilege, of divine authority. And it also reminds us that Christ, after he was born, 
is gonna go back to heaven, but he's forever man and forever God. This is a veiled reference to, again, this is his deity. This Jesus is still God, even though he became a man. It's also a reminder that I believe that we need to think consciously, I gotta stay tethered, I could be right next to the Lord in my decision making and my thought processes. So here's a transition, why would we choose to live a life like this? Why would we do that? Isn't that kind of confining all this Jesus talk and you gotta be seeking Jesus? That seems a little restrictive, doesn't it? Well, he gives you a reason. Look at our motivation in verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That word, you have died, is this past tense. It, it, it took place in the, at salvation. That's all old, that's past. And so, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is a great verse. You've got to write it down. Write it down in your notes. The old has passed away and the new nature has replaced the old. Old, new. You've died. The penalty for our sin has been paid. And remember, we talked about that off and on over the last several weeks. Quit dredging, dredging up your past. That stuff is forgiven. Quit beating yourself up. We saw that last week in that video. And your life is hidden in Christ in God. Now this is a play on words. And if you think hidden in Christ, we kind of think, well, Christ is there and, and he goes before us and they don't really see us, they see Christ. That's part of the word picture. But remember, Paul's combating some false teachers. And they claim that the only way you could uh, initiate real spirituality is you had to understand the hidden teachings. And so he's kind of calling them out in a kind of a not so playful way. He's just kind of calling their bluff and he's saying, hey, we're hidden in Christ. In fact, here's another way to say it. For you, the false teachers, your treasure of wisdom are hidden in your secret books. But for us in Christ, the treasury of wisdom is that we're hidden in him. There's no hocus pocus, there's no special books, there's no secret handshake. There's no three knocks on the door and then you're in. So in what ways is your life hidden with Christ? I think when you live authentically, people see Jesus more than they see us. Now, any church is made up of a cast of characters. So as I look out across this audience, I see Jesus in you through different ways. This young lady sitting in the second row, she's about to die because I'm calling her out. She's married to the elder board chairman. Do you know how Christ is lived through her life? She has to be hospitable all the time because we're always at their house eating and meeting. And she does it with charm and delight and grace. You're saying, who am I gonna pick next? Let me survey the crowd. If you're in the front, you're kinda dead meat, aren't you? I'll just pick second row here. I always make fun of Mario in a fun way because he sounds like the Godfather, right? <laughs> he's a coach, he's got kids, he's out on the fields. You know how Christ is using him? By being out there. Being salt and light way in the back. There's a whole bunch of prayer warriors back there and they don't all have to have gray hair, but many of them do. God is using you because I'm pretty sure that every morning when you get up 
ABF is on your lips as you're talking to God about this church, and you've been doing that for 40 years. And so, how is it? How is it that we can live for Christ and our life is hidden with him? Here's a simple way you'll know. When people see Jesus more than they see you, then you know that your life is hidden with Christ and God. There are so many times when my life is not hidden with Christ and God, and in fact, when I mess up, I worry in my own flesh about being a bad ambassador for Jesus. And my, 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 uh, my mess-ups are prolific at times. And yet I know this, is that ultimately my salvation is protected according to this because my life is hidden with Christ. He paid for the penalty of my sins. So, how does all this play out for us as believers? Well, look at verse four, the revelation. What's our meeting with Christ? Because when Christ, who is your life, appears, who's revealed, then you will appear with him in glory. And so Jesus is, is gonna come back someday and most people think this is a, a reference to the second coming, not the rapture, but either way, we do know this about his, uh, his, uh, the future. It says, in the verses you can write them down, John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life. And the third one, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1, 21. He's the resurrection and the life. He's come to give us life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So summary is that he's not just life, he is your life. He is your life. And he says it will appear to him in glory. What is that day gonna look like? Most of us don't deal with revelation because it's way too complicated and our eschatology is forever shifting because we're trying to figure out does something new has happened. And, but here's real plain. There's no ambiguity in this. So look at Revelation 19. I'll put it on the screen. Then I saw heaven and earth opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and his name is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You say, is that a reference to Jesus? Yes, how do we know that? Go back to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Connect those two. That's describing Jesus. And so Jesus coming back should motivate us, not scare us. We're citizens of heaven while we're living on earth. Now, I brought my passport, and I think I have one on the screen there for you. You see, my, my passport says I'm a U.S. citizen right here. But when I visit countries, they've got to stamp these things. They're called visas, right? And here's a visa from uh, Cuba, of all places, Israel, different places I've been. So when we think about our country of origin, for Christians, your country of origin is heaven. And it's only stamped with an earth visa. This world is not your home. One of my favorite rockers of all time is a guy named Larry Norman. He's now dead but he talked about it in one of his albums, I'm only visiting this planet. And so when you visit a foreign country, you know that you're not home. And if you've ever been out of the country, how many of you have actually been out of the United States? Raise your hand. Look at all of you world travelers. Let's just say, how many of you, it's Mexico or Canada? 
all right? How about Russia? Anybody been to Russia? Have you been to Russia more than once? Yeah, Jim's crew, all, all of you guys, right? Or the Czech Republic. I mean, when you're, you, know, you can like it, but I'm always so glad to get home. I'm always glad to get home. And so coming home, this anticipation of home, is why we can sit here yesterday and talk about John Champ. He knew where his priorities were. He was only visiting. His earthly home is where he was destined to be. Now let me tell you, I don't have a death wish. I want to get all that I can get done here on earth. But ultimately, ultimately, heaven is the place that we're going to live. So what's the difference? First principle, live in light of eternity, not out of expediency. See, heaven is the ultimate direction of our life. Larry Walter's story doesn't end well, by the way. If you followed his life, and I did some research in recent years, whatever happened to him? You see, the attention didn't bring that enduring happiness that he was looking for. Walters and his girlfriend of 15 years, who had helped him pay for the adventure, ended their relationship. His speaking career fizzled, and he ended up only working very sporadically as a security guard. Some say that he sought the solace of reading his Bible and walking in the San Gabriel Mountains. I don't know that to be true, but he did spend a lot of time up in those mountains, and he worked as a volunteer for the U.S. Forest Service. It seemed like Larry came to the mountains because he was disappointed with the way his life was going as his friend Joyce Rios and a fellow volunteer ranger said this. And unfortunately on October 6th, some many years later when he was four, 44 years old, he went to his favorite hiking place and ended his life. He took his own life. You see, ultimately, thrills and fame and fortune, it's never going to be enough. I want you to think about a commercial you've been seeing on TV recently because I think the advertisers are figuring something out. After being hated for his uh, departure from Cleveland to Miami, LeBron James had only one way of defining success. And that was winning a championship last year. But look what he's talking about on TV right now. His kids are sitting at the kitchen table. He's getting a haircut with his friends. They're looking at a video clip of an unbelievable dunk. Things that are just kind of everyday experiences. Not a mention of a world championship but an implication that maybe what's most important is sitting right next to you. See, ultimately, when heaven is your eternal perspective, then as parents, what's most important to you is sitting right next to you. Because your kids, you can reach the world for Christ, if, but if you fumble that baton, as we talked about a few weeks ago, kids, students, that is why your parents are so passionate about Jesus. And I know at times you think I just single you out, and I am for a reason, because I believe 
that you guys will make a difference that will change the landscape for eternity. If you do it now, if you're sold out now, you've got the rest of your life to let Jesus Christ be Lord. And that's why guys that sing in bands don't just do it because it's a gig. It's because they believe that Jesus Christ so radically transcends this earth that by doing worship at Hume Lake and through music, they can capture the hearts of students in a way that nobody else can. Music is the cultural medium by way of trans of tra uh, um, transferring beliefs. And so, think in light of eternity. Number two, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? I know it's, a tr it's almost trite, but what would Jesus do? S stop every decision you make. Okay, what would Jesus do? You get really poor service at the restaurant you go to a lot. Do you stiff the guy just to make your point? Or do you show grace and mercy and still give a good tip? And then ask him, hey, how can I pray for you today? When your heart's broken because of a relationship that's gone south, and it seems like it's irreparable, do you hold a grudge? Or do you extend forgiveness? You say, that's easy for you to say. What if it was your husband who left you? who cheated on you, who had an affair, who left you. See, ultimately, as Christians, when you think in light of eternity, it frames every decision and every conversation. Because as a man thinketh, so is he. What comes out of your mouth reveals the true heart. And so when someone cuts you off or you hit your thumb with a hammer, or something breaks at home, or milk is spilled all over the floor, does a word of edification come out of your mouth, or something less desirable? Think, what would Jesus do? By the way, and don't use just the clearing of the temple to justify your anger. Well, Jesus would kick butt on those guys, right? <laughs> yeah, two times he did that, and just think about that anger, by the way. It was reserved for who? Religious leaders was one group, and then people taking advantage of people and cheating others. So what would Jesus do? And then lastly, live each day as if it were your last. Live each day as if it's your last. The birth of my grandson reminds me that I gotta get busy for the kingdom. I don't want to train him to be a great athlete. I want to train him to be a soldier for Jesus Christ. The video I'm going to play for you right now is six minutes long, and it probably frames this discussion better than anything I could do. It's called Clayton's Story, and it's about a young man who died a few years ago from a sister church of ours called Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley. And I had a bunch of Eternity Bible College kids going to my church at the time, and they knew Clayton but it probably frames this perspective on what would Jesus do in living in light of eternity better than any video clip I could show you. Let's watch it. Life for a lot of people means a lot of different things. 
life for some person can mean the usual go to school, go to college, get a good job, get a good husband or wife, get a good family, get a good car, get a good home, get a good everything, and then have a good memorial service. My name is Clayton McDonald, and I am at the end of my life. Eat, sleep, play, and poop. You are one lucky dog. Hey, where are you guys going? I'm taking Sam to school. Do you think I can get a ride? Yeah, hurry up. I died tonight. Uh, I would miss him so much. Alright, bye Sammy. Bye Sam. Bye Sam. Alright, bye Zach. I love you, man. Hey Clay. Yeah. Is everything good, man? You alright? Yeah. I'm good. I got the ray gun pretty early, which helped, and then I got like a browning. It's a shotgun? No, it's a browning <laughs> heavy machine gun. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. Two weeks ago, one o'clock in the morning, and John just looks outside and is just like,
My name is Clay McDonald, and I'm here to share my story. I'm at seven years old. They thought it was just the flu. And now, 12 years later, I've been diagnosed with leukemia for the fourth time, and the doctors can't do anything about it. So naturally, you get a lot of questions from something as severe as this. And one of the questions I get asked the most is, hey, Clayton, are you scared? Yeah, I'm scared. I'm terrified. But I'm not scared of cancer because I've had it most of my life. I know what's going to happen. And I'm not scared to die either because I know where I'm going when I die. I'm scared for everybody else. I'm scared for those who don't know where they're going when they die. I'm scared for those who might think they know where they're going when they die, but they really don't. And I'm especially scared for those of you who are distracted by this world. Distracted by school, distracted by sports, distracted by girlfriends, boyfriends, iPods, this or that, distracted by anything and everything Satan can throw in front of them. That is what I'm scared for. I have the luxury of knowing about when I'm going to die, and you don't. See, I feel, I feel sorry for you, because you don't know. So it's not hard for me to be thankful for everyday things. It's not hard for me to be thankful for my family and friends when I know I might not see them again tomorrow. It's not hard for me to be thankful for every breath that I have, because it was given to me by God. What is it that ultimately will define your experiences? There's a high school kid who died when he was 19, 20 years old who knew this verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, it's easy to get caught up in the emotion of the fact that that movie was completed and he died the next day. But I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm trying to ask you from the depths of my heart, what are you living for? What is it that has given you your passion and purpose in life? And I'm saying if you're a businessman, you do that business to the glory of God. If you're a student, you study hard, get good grades, and give Jesus the credit. If you're a mom or a dad, do all that you're going to do, but don't ever sacrifice that most important time of the day when you put those children to bed. 
and you stroke their hair and you tell them that Jesus loves them. And the last words on your lips is Jesus. I got to rock him yesterday. And I prayed that Phineas would be jealous for God. I want to be emotional about the things that Jesus got emotional about. Remember when Jesus wept? He wept because of the unbelief of Jerusalem. How about the last time we wept for a Gura Hills, for people who were far from God. I don't do it very often, I'll be honest with you. But it's moments like these when I'm in God's Word and I see a video like that, it frames the discussion about what I want to do with my life. It should frame the discussion about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Amen? Would you bow with me? And then we're going to sing. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. I don't know if you can do this physically, some of you, but I'm going to kneel. I'm going to kneel right where I'm at. And if you'd kneel with me, if you're able... I'd like us to kneel before the Lord because we've got some big decisions as a church. And they're framed in light of eternity. We're not just looking for a pastor. That's part of it. But ultimately, we're saying, what is our destiny as a church? And I'd like to lead us, Heavenly Father, in light of eternity, what would you have us to do as a church? What what would you call us as a body to be about? Lord, I believe it's about lost people who are far from you who need to hear the love of Jesus. It's about strengthening families where Jesus Christ is evident and the kids see it and mom and dad talk about it. It's for those of us in our latter years, for those who have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years to pass that baton grandkids spiritually Lord it's for those who are in this church seeking but not yet knowing you personally to make that ultimate step of commitment and so Lord we want to think about eternity help us to frame every discussion every decision we make what would Jesus do and then live with that eternal perspective Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then when he is revealed, you will also be revealed with him in glory. Amen. Amen. God in my way.
my everything. Not just when it's convenient, but in the valleys, on the mountaintops. Would you stand with me as we close? Jesus, it is our prayer that you would be our everything. And so once again today, it's unto you that we give all glory and power, dominion and majesty, both now and forevermore. Amen. You are dismissed.